welcome to the Grace Baptist Sermon Podcast. Pastor Andy Oliver is our Bible teacher and expositor. Today's message is from Nehemiah 13, Remember Me for Good. Please take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. Now as we've gone through the the book of Nehemiah, recognize that almost the entire book takes place in the first half year of his governorship. The wall was built, a revival broke out, and the people turned to the Lord as they had not done in many generations. Over 3,000 people moved to Jerusalem, and the people sought to honor God by obeying His Word. And by the way, that's how we honor God, by His obeying His Word. We don't come up with our own ideas, we follow what God has said. They made a covenant with God, promising not to intermarry with their pagan neighbors, which was forbidden in the Old Testament, and by the way, is still a principle today in the passage we read earlier this morning, that they would observe the Sabbath and give for the support of the temple. The people at the time, the people that signed that covenant, the thing we looked at last week, were very much in earnest, and they followed through all the years that Nehemiah was the governor. Now, Nehemiah, by the way, was governor there for 12 years. And so for 12 years, these people were faithful in keeping that covenant promise. They did not back down. They did not change their minds. They did not waver. They were faithful. They were consistent. And they were profitable. Now, if Nehemiah was a novel, if Nehemiah was a a story, a a piece of fiction, we would have ended it with chapter 12 to uh, to maintain that happy ending. But as the, the truth that we see in Scripture is played out over and over again through history, in that... Very often, let me say very often, every time, every time there is a great working of God among fallen humanity, these things are temporary. When we read about a great awakening, when we read about a great revival, when we see God doing great things in the hearts and lives of people in history and in the scripture, recognize that those movements are temporary. Now, what God does in the hearts and lives of individuals that, that is permanent. Salvation is a permanent work of grace. But the movement is a temporary thing. Many who profess faith are not truly born again. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 20, it says, By their fruits ye shall know them. Many will join on the, the bandwagon of religion when it's popular. But as the scripture saith, but dureth for a while, but when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, they become, they are offended. But a true work of grace, an individual work of grace is something that endures. As it says again, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Now we dealt with the, the concept of separation in the, in the reading a little bit, and we're going to deal with that again here at the beginning of chapter 13. Now we're still, in chapter beginning here, we're still dealing with the, the carryover of chapter 12. This is part of chapter 12, but it's, it, uh, it transitions into the theme that we're looking at. So it says, on that day, as they were reading the scripture, when they're there for the, the Feast of Tabernacles, the people are hungry for the word, they want the word. Remember, they didn't all have a copy of the scriptures. And so if they're going to hear the word of God, they, uh, they get one of the scribes to bring out the great big scroll, and it would be read in public before those thousands of people that had gathered there at Jerusalem for that feast. And as they're reading in the scroll, uh, in the audience of the people, it was there, there, and it was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of the Lord forever. Now, what in the world is that all about? Are there exceptions? Yes, there are. We saw Rahab, uh, not Rahab, but, uh, Ruth, was a Moabite. She was from the country of Moab, the east of the, the Red Sea, or the Dead Sea, and, uh, and she put her trust in the God of Israel and was welcomed into the, into the community of Israel. But what they're talking about here is twofold. Number one, uh, when the children of Israel were wandering within the wilderness with Moses and so forth, as they are traveling up the, the, uh, the east side of Jordan, what is the modern country of Jordan? The people of Moab and the people of Ammon would not allow the Israelites to just pass through on the highway. They wouldn't let them to come through their country. They were afraid of them, for one, but they would not allow so. There was, there was a vindictive attitude there. And not only that, they hired a false prophet, a fellow named Balaam. This is recorded in the book of Numbers. They hired Balaam to curse 
Israel. Now, God intervened and told Balaam, you will only say what I tell you to say. And instead, we have four different oracles that he gives, and they are all blessings on Israel. Some prophetic things that would be happening hundreds of years later. But God spoke through this man in spite of himself, and gave the truth and gave a blessing on Israel. But Balaam was determined to earn his fee. He was determined to bring a curse upon Israel, and so he had another plan. And so when you read about Balaam other places in the scripture, this is why he is condemned. How can we get God to curse what God has promised to bless? How can we get God to turn his back on Israel? Well, what we do is we get Israel to turn their back on God. And if we can get Israel to turn their back on God, then God will chastise Israel and Moab will get what they want. Ammon will get what they want. And that's what they did. They, in, at Baal Peor, they, they invited the, uh, the people to the pagan sacrifices. And they were involved in, in, uh, in the ritual, uh, prostitution and so on that was, that was part of that unclean worship. And Israel, uh, participated in that. And God brought along, brought a curse upon the Israel, on Israel for a brief window of time. Balaam ca- caused a, a stumbling block. And it says there in the, in the text, because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam against them, that he should curse, howbeit God turned the blessing into a curse. Now it came to pass, when they had heard the law, this is the response of the people who heard this read during the time of Nehemiah. When they heard this, they separated Israel from this mixed multitude. Part of the problem also was, were the Ammonites and were the Moabites, in spite of their ancestry, they were the, the descendants of Lot, Abraham's uh, nephew. In spite of that, were these people worshipers of the, of the true God? The answer is no. They were worshipers of, of a multitude of false gods. They were worshipers of gods that involved human sacrifice. They were worshipers of gods that involved ritual prostitution. They were involved in all sorts of unclean, horrible, wicked Religious worship, turning the depravity of man into a sacred act. And therefore, what God had commanded in the Old Testament, over and over again, is that they are not to intermarry with these people because they will corrupt you. They will pollute you. They will pull you away from God. And this is an Old Testament and a New Testament Command Again, a passage we read earlier this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. It says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion or fellowship, that's the idea there, hath light with darkness? And by the way, this passage is not limited to marriage. This is involved in business partnerships and a number of other things. And a failure to heed this command, a failure to heed this command will lead to all sorts of heartache and trouble. Uh, give you an illustration. Some of you remember, the younger generation doesn't get taught this stuff. But, uh, when I was in school, we were taught about the pilgrims. We even had to make, remember, remember, make construction paper hats, you know, with the big buckle on the front, remember that? And we were taught about the pilgrims. And why they came here? They came here for religious liberty. They were being persecuted in England. They came here for religious liberty. And if you were to study what these folks believe, they were very close to what we believe here. They were, they, they believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. That salvation was by grace through faith. They believe that Christ paid the penalty of our sin on Calvary's cross. And by putting our trust in what Christ has done for us, we can have everlasting life. They preached that message. But they had some other problems. When you have bad theology, remember this always, always, always. Bad theology results in bad behavior. Always. And even if you are well intended, even if you, you think you're, you're understanding the scripture right, they were, they were wrong on this category. What they tried to do there in New England, in the Puritan era, is they tried to create a, a little heaven on earth. They were trying to create the kingdom of God there in Massachusetts. And therefore, it was required for everybody to go to church. But they also believed that only people who were born again could become church members. But everybody had to go to church. But you had to be born again and to be a member of the church. And so as time went by, yeah, everybody is showing up. Yes, the building is full. But it got to the point where a minority of the people that were there on any given Sunday were actually believers. 
And so there were places where you had 15, 20, 25% of the congregation were the members and everybody else was just filled. And this was creating some problems. And the people who were coming and having to come, required to come by law, this is in the colonial era, were, were upset that they didn't have a voice in church government. We don't have, we don't get to, we don't have a say so in who is the pastor. We don't get to say, have a say so as far as what the church believes. We don't get to have a say so as far as the color of the carpet or whatever you want to fight about, fight about. And so they made a compromise. We'll do something called the halfway covenant. Anybody here heard of that? The halfway covenant. All right. Halfway covenant means, yes, okay, you believers who are members of the church, you're the, you're the, you're the voting members, but the rest of you, because you're here, because you're dropping something in the plate, because you're here, you get half a vote. That's what they did. So the rest of you are sort of halfway there. But the problem is when you've only got 20% of the congregation that are actually born again, and I've got a building full of lost people, and they have half a vote, they're going to be able to outvote the born-again people. And it wasn't too long before that's what happened. And it wasn't too long before the the church that was founded by godly, God-fearing, born-again Puritan people no longer preached the gospel. You know, Harvard University was founded to train gospel preachers. And it went away from that within a generation and a half. Yale... Yale was founded to to fix what Harvard had stopped doing. How long did that last? And so they said, well, let's do this again. And they founded Princeton. Well, you get the idea. It doesn't last because they keep compromising. And again, they keep compromising because of bad theology, which results in bad behavior. And the fact that these things don't last because you need to have a work of the Spirit in the heart. And it's an individual thing. And yes, if somebody is truly born again, they're going to be a transformed life. Ideally, they're going to have a yielded heart, but we go up and down in our spiritual lives. But the movement as a whole is temporary. A revival is temporary. And the Puritan revival was a temporary thing. And it fell apart in large part because of compromise. A failure to do what God wanted them to do. These people in... uh, in Nehemiah's day, it says it came to pass when they heard the law, verse 3, that they separated from, uh, from Israel that all that mixed multitude. They obeyed the scripture. Now, a move like that is not popular. It doesn't make friends. It is often not easy to do. But you know what? It was honoring to God. They did what was right because it was right. Now, this all is done in the first six months of Nehemiah's governorship. He is there for 12 years. And during those 12 years that he is there, there in its capital in, in Jerusalem, he's residing there in Jerusalem. The city has been built in, in, in record time. We have the temple, we have the people coming to the various feasts, we have the walls, we have 3,000 people that have moved to the city, and thereafter it's slowly enlarged even more beyond that. We have some great and wonderful things happen. His, his 12 years of governorship were just a remarkable, wonderful blessing in obedience to what God had, had said in his word. Now, if we were to go back to the very beginning of Nehemiah, the beginning of chapter 2, you don't have to turn there. There's a, there's, a, there's a little phrase that's mentioned. The, the, the king says, well, what, what do you want? He says, well, I want to go back and rebuild the city of my ancestors. And then he says, how long will you be? It doesn't say there. But he says, I, I set a time. Twelve years. At the end of those twelve years, Nehemiah has to go back to the capital. I can't go over to SeaTac and catch a flight. You know, it's, it's amazing. You can go virtually any place on this planet where there's people. There's a few uninhabited islands and so on. But you can go any place on this earth, virtually, within 24 hours. That's a fairly new phenomenon, by the way. How long did it take Ezra 
to get to Jerusalem when he had uh, had left. Well, it took Ezra three, five, excuse me, five months, according to Ezra chapter seven and verse nine. It took him took him that long to go from Babylon to Jerusalem. Went on foot, or he's riding a donkey at most a horse. It took a long time. You only travel so much per day. You have to have an entourage. You've got to deal with uh, highway robbers, and you got to deal with all these other things. And so you went with a group of people, and you you went maybe uh, fifteen or twenty miles a day. And of course, you got to have water and supplies and all these other things. You're, I mean, some of you like camping. Uh, I gave up sleeping on the ground when I was in my twenties, early thirties. You know, rocks uh, just don't. I, I I much prefer my my memory foam bed personally. But as they they're camping on the way, it's a long trip. Nehemiah's got to go back. He's going to be there for a while. He is gone for a minimum, a minimum of two years. Most uh, most of the commentators say that he was gone for probably five or more, sometimes as long as ten. We're not sure. But somewhere along the way, he was finally able to get another installment as the governor there in Judea. Now, he's been gone for a number of years. A lot of the people in that time have passed off the scene. Uh, some have died. Maybe a few of them have gone back to Babylon or wherever they had come from. But I would dare say that the majority of the people in leadership during the passage of, t- of the years had passed away. But not everybody. He comes back. Verse 4. He says, before this, before this, Eliashib, the priest having the oversight of the chamber of the house of our God, was allied with Tobiah. Now let's pause there for a moment. We have a problem here. We have a problem because of a failure to heed what was there in verses 1, 2, and 3. Tobiah is the high priest. And he has an alliance somehow. You can read through the, through that. It's probably his grandson is married to this guy's grandson. And so there's a connection. Now who is Tobiah? Tobiah is an Ammonite. He's one of the guys that they're not supposed to fellowship with. He's a pagan. But he has a formal connection with Tobiah. Tobiah is also one of the guys that heckled the Israelites and tried to keep them from building the wall back at the beginning of the book. He is not a friendly character. He's not just a neighbor that we have some differences with. He is a hostile enemy. And in order to weasel his way in and create more mischief, he will do so, standard operating procedure for pagans back in the day. We see this even among the children of Israel as you read your Old Testament. We're going to, we're creating a formal alliance. And it is usually done by marriage. So that we can create a connection. But it was almost always done for personal reasons, personal leverage political reasons. It isn't because of love and so on. These people, these, you know, the people who got hitched together probably never met each other beforehand. It was an arranged marriage, but it was done for political things. It's a, it's a contract. And so there's a connection between Tobiah and Eliashib. Now, Old Testament law, the priests were only allowed to marry an Israelite. There were some strict rules for, for that. There were uh, there was a little bit more latitude for your average Jew, but the high priest especially was was very very limited as far as who he could choose for a wife. And here we have Eliashib's family going into a pagan relationship. Tobiah had some other uh, connections with the Jews, as recorded back in chapter six and verses seventeen and eighteen. He is an enemy. He is hostile, and he is weaseling his way in. Creating connections. Now, Eliashib, there are some people that, that look at life, some people look at the ministry this way of how can I, how can I better myself? How can I improve my, my position? How can I improve my, my status? How can I build my power base? Well, by, by creating friends here and by by scratching this fellow's back here and by doing these people over here some favors and by in ancient times by uh by getting married into this family and Eliashib is looking at everything from this perspective he's not looking at well, how can i honor the god that i'm supposedly serving 
which is what we ought to be doing, and that's what he ought to have been doing. But instead, he's doing these other things. It's all about promotion. It's all about self. It's all about building his own power base. And so when, when Nehemiah was gone, all these things started happening. Now, ideally, ideally, when Nehemiah stepped out, he is, because he has to, he doesn't have any choice. I've, I've left, I've left good people in charge. He is, I know the, the high priest is going to take care of this, and, and this guy's here taking care of this, and this guy here is taking care of this, and this, we've got good leadership in place. I can step out and things should just continue to go on. But very often it doesn't go that way. And that was the case here because sometimes people pass off the scene. Sometimes people get sick. Some people become, some people have to leave, whatever the case may be. But circumstances changed. And during his absence, it's kind of interesting, you read this, this chapter 13, we have two people that are, that are prominent characters earlier in the book, and they're not mentioned here. They had probably passed off the scene. We have a fellow named Hanani, who's just mentioned in passing, but he, he's the one that was faithful above many, and Nehemiah, or, and Nehemiah had used him. And then we don't see Ezra either. These two guys are gone. These two guys that had been faithful leaders are, are off the scene. Other godly leaders had, had since passed off the scene as well. And as you read the book of Malachi, Malachi is talking about the corruption of the people. He is talking about the corruption of the priesthood. This is the last book in your Bible, in your Old Testament. He's talking about the corruption of the priesthood. He's talking about the corruption of the people. He's talking about the paganization of Israel. And Malachi was almost certainly written during this window of time when Nehemiah was gone. All these things happening. All these troubles coming. Why? Because they just will not obey the word of God. They had promised, they had made a covenant, a revival had happened, they had written out this big long promise, they had signed their names to it, it was all there, and they were faithful to it for 12 years. And then Nehemiah is gone. And somebody else who's in charge, Eliashib, mentioned here in verse 4, in verse four comes in and begins to cut corners. While the, the cat's away, the, the mice will play. And so we have what are referred to as sins of commission, the, the, the overdoing of things that are wrong. The high priest makes this connection. And here's what he did. Look at first, this is just, this is mind boggling. As you read this, you can't, you can't believe this, this, this actually happened. Verse five. And he, let's talk about Tobiah, or not Tobiah, but, uh, uh, Eliashib. And Eliashib prepared for him, that's Tobiah, a great chamber. Now, let me pause here for just a minute. The temple building, the temple building, mentioned its size, it is smaller than this room and the lobby combined. Did not have the great, huge, monumental, vaulted ceiling and stuff that the earlier temple and the later temple had. It was a very basic building. They were poor when they built this. They had limited resources, but they had a temple and it functioned. When they built the temple, they had storerooms and so on that were attached to it. It is much easier to build a building, and if you're going to expand it, to share a wall. And this is what was true with Solomon's temple as well. That the storerooms and the changing rooms and some of the other things that were used by the priests were attached to the outside walls of the temple. And so you would have a store, a couple of storerooms built onto the side of the temple on this side and on the side of that, on that side. This is where they stored the, uh, the firewood, the, the, uh, the priest's clothing, the, the various utensils and so on that were used for the sacrifices, uh, the, uh, the anointing oil, all these different things that they were, they were part of the worship would be stored in these buildings. And the various tithes and so on that the people brought were also stored in these buildings. What does Eliashib do? He takes one of these things and turns it into an apartment for Tobiah. The place which before they had the meat offerings, that'd be the, for, for the flour and so on, and the frankincense and the vessels and the tithes of the, the grain and the new wine and the oil which was commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers and the porters and the offerings of the priests. All this was turned into an apartment for Tobiah. Which means that Tobiah, at least part of the time, is living there in Jerusalem. 
And not only living there in Jerusalem, he's living in an apartment that's connected to the temple. And he's a pagan. And who arranged for this? The high priest. Now, I suspect that Nehemiah did not know about this while he's there in Babylon. It's probably just as well. Otherwise, he'd have pulled all his hair out. Because he says there in verse 6, but at this time was I, I was not in Jerusalem. And he talks about having to go back to Babylon. And it says, after certain days, I obtained I leave of the king. So after a certain number of probably years had gone by, he goes back. Like I said, it's a five-month trip to and from. And so a couple of years at least have passed. He comes back and he finds out what has happened. But we had a revival. But the people had signed the covenant. But I had left responsible people in charge. But everything was in place. What was the catalyst for the problem? Well, what's recorded here is that the guy who was in charge, the high priest, failed to keep his promise and failed to obey God's word. He compromised. He disobeyed. He failed to keep his word. Now, if you're like me, you revel in what Nehemiah does when he shows up. Verse 7, and I came to Jerusalem. Now, remember, he is coming with an entourage, If probably just like he came the first time. He's got soldiers and so on coming with him, so he they can't, with, with, they can't withstand him. He is the official governor, so he has got the authority, he's got the credentials. You can't say no to this guy. He has the authority of the king behind him. He shows up, and I strongly suspect that they didn't know he, when he was coming, or even if he was coming. Again, no texting. No telephone, no email. The best thing that they had at the time was a Pony Express. And because this guy, Nehemiah, was a high government official, he probably could have made sure, hey, no messages coming before I get there. So here he shows up. Bang! Sometimes if we know that the boss is coming, I'm familiar with certain workplaces that keep keep a... A, 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 uh, a scout at the door. Oh, hurry up! Here he comes! And everybody jumps back and hurries up and starts doing what they're supposed to be doing. And I've shared the story. My dad worked nights at the GE wire mill in Schenectady when I was, uh, when I was a kid. And he would give us instructions. Alright, I want, I want that wagon of hay unloaded when I get home. And we had a, a hundred, a hundred yard driveway that was gravel. And there were big trees in front of the house. So you couldn't see the house from the road. But as soon as my dad turned onto the, onto the drive, we could hear the, the wheels hit the gravel. And we had it. We knew we could run from the house out to the barn before he pulled into the yard. We had it down. And we'd start throwing the hay off as fast. Oh, dad, boy, this is hard work. Tobiah. There in the temple with his apartment. Tobiah now in a position to exert control and influence and leadership. Can you think of some excuses? Because we always have some excuses. Excuses as to why Eliashib allowed this to happen. Not, let me change that. Why he, he orchestrated this. How can you justify this? He's high priest. All the people have been hearing the scripture read. They've made the promise. The people know what's going on. He knows what's going on. How can he justify this? I know. Evangelism. Evangelism. We're going to try, we're going to try to get Tobiah to forsake his paganism and worship our God. So what we're going to do is, is he's going to, he's going to move here to Jerusalem, at least part time. But we, we need to, he's a, he's a, he's a high official. We need to make sure he gets a nice place to stay. I know what we'll use. We'll use one of the, one of the storerooms over here. 
it'll, it's right next to the temple, and that way he can see what's going on here. He'll be able to hear the scripture read, and God will touch his heart. When I was in high school, there was a uh, beautiful young lady who used to attend our Bible study. Christian girl. And she would get asked, beautiful girl, she get asked out all the time by all different guys. And she would not say no. And we'd show her 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 4, verse, you know, verse 14, and other passages like that. And her answer was, but I'm trying to reach them with the gospel. Evangelistic dating does not justify disobeying scripture. Because it ends up becoming, too often, an evangelistic marriage. And I could spend the next 30 minutes telling you horror stories of people who were believers who were stuck with unbelievers for decades. And some, most, never did believe. And sometimes those sharing a roof with that person was, was, was almost hell on earth. You can never serve, get this straight, you can never serve God by disobeying Him. You never have a better idea. If God says, don't do that, you say, oh, but I want to do it and here's why. You never have a better idea than God. You never do. Doing wrong is never justified. I don't care what your motives are. Doing wrong is never justified. You can't please God by disobeying Him. And don't expect God's blessing on your disobedience either. Well, I prayed about it. Yes, that's fine. That's good. Pray all you want to. But, and I have peace. Ah, can't tell you how many times I've heard that. I prayed about it. I have peace. Yes, but it says this. See, what your peace is, is a delusion that I just want it so bad that I'm going to feel good about it. I'm going to feel good about it. Because if we disobey this, there is a term for that. I don't care what your motives are. I don't care what peace you feel in your heart. There's a term for disobeying this. It's called sin. And your good intentions are still sin. And that's what put Christ on the cross in the first place. It's still sin. And I don't care how good your motives are, what kind of justification you have, it is never right to do wrong. Period. Nehemiah shows up. I came to Jerusalem, understood the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And it says, and it grieved me sore. Therefore, (laughs) I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. Amen. (laughs) They didn't call you, Hall. They didn't call him Bayflower. He got a shovel and threw it out. And then I commanded and they cleansed the chambers. Time to get out the Lysol. And thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God and the meat offering and the frankincense. I took out this guy's stuff and I cleansed it. I cleansed the place and I put back what was supposed to be there. This was built, this was consecrated, this was ordered by God for this purpose, and we're going to use it for what God had said, period. All right, that's taken care of. Now what's the problem? Verse 10. And I perceived that the portions, I think, by the way, looking at Nehemiah, at the character, not just the book, but looking at this guy, I'll guarantee you, that the day he arrived, before he slept that night, this was taken care of. This is first day stuff. What we're looking at next is probably what he noticed the next day. I mean, this guy's right on the, right on the, on target here and fast with this, with his work. 
I perceived that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. For the Levites and the singers that did the work had fled every man to his field. This means that the offerings that all the people back in chapter 11 had promised to give weren't, weren't being given to the, to the temple workers. If the temple workers are not given their, their stipends so that they can eat, where am I going to get my, my food? How am I going to get, earn a, earn a livelihood? How can I, how can I survive? I'm going to go back to farming like I did before, like my ancestors did, like my neighbors do. They hadn't been paying the temple workers like they had promised, and therefore the temple workers had, had gone into secular workforce. Then I contended with the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and I set them in their place. All right. We're going to gather the who's who that I had left in charge. And we're going to bring them in and I am going to read them the riot act. You guys had made promises. You guys had signed your name on the document. You know what the scripture said. There was a time when you were eager to obey. And so he reprimanded the leaders. And he's got a list of names here. So in scripture, for all eternity, the compromisers' names are here. And he also lists the ones that were faithful in their office. Because there were some faithful people. You can only do what those above you will let you do to some degree. And there were men that were faithful in doing what they could. And Nehemiah put these people in positions of leadership. Trustworthy were people were put in charge. They believed in what they were doing and they had the character to follow through on. And then you'll see this phrase several times here in Nehemiah chapter 3, or chapter 13. He says at the beginning of verse 14, because you see a lot of prayers intermixed in the whole book. He says in verse 14, Remember me, O God, concerning this, and wipe not out my, my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for the offices thereof. Lord, they've undone so much of what I, what I did. But Lord, remember what I did. You know, one of the blessed things. I will never, two things. Number one, the grace of God is a wonderful, wonderful thing. I will, in eternity, I will never be judged for my sin. I may suffer temporal consequences. God may chastise me, and then there's the, the consequences of some things that I may have done. If, if I, if I was uh, an alcoholic, and I drank heavily, and then I got saved, and God delivered me from the alcoholic, but I developed cirrhosis of liver, I'm going to suffer temporal consequences for sin of my youth. But as far as eternity is concerned, my sin's gone. I will never be held to account for my sin in eternity. It's gone. I'm under the grace of God. And so often we sit there and we complain and we bemoan and we, we feel guilty about sin that, that has been taken care of. There are certain things we need to forget. Because confessed sin that's been forsaken, God has forgotten. And we need to as well. Don't, don't live in the, in the, in the wonderful world, which isn't very wonderful, of what if. What if I had only done this? What if I hadn't done this? Don't, don't go there. Don't go there. I am not judged for my sin. And then here's the other thing. As far as the Bema seat judgment, where, where we are, we receive crowns, where we are rewarded. God does not judge us for great, big, glorious, wonderful, big things. Now, we have a tendency to look at it that way because that's what we think of as success. On the contrary, we are rewarded for what we did with what we had. The talents that God has given you, the opportunities that God has given you, what did you do with those? What did you do with your, your time and your abilities and your opportunity? That's what God rewards you for. God does not reward us for outcome. All right, remember that. God does not reward us for outcome. God rewards us for our obedience. We want success in the world's eyes. I want to be able to do this, this, and this, and have this happen. 
I want to have, have a tangible result of my efforts. And you do too. Most of the time you do. You like that. I mean, it's kind of frustrating sometimes when you do a lot of work and nothing happens. But very often the Christian life is like that. We are busy doing what we're supposed to be doing. And sometimes we see some great results. Sometimes we see some fruit. And sometimes we see fruit that goes away or it withers or the outcome was not nearly what we had hoped and anticipated. He says, Lord, remember me. Remember what I did. And God does. And even though after it's all done and it's gone, God remembers. I've shared this a few times. I was at a, a meeting in Michigan a couple years ago, over two years ago. There are more churches like Grace Baptist Church in Michigan, in the state of Michigan, than there are in Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia, Montana, and Wyoming combined. And I was... The leadership of this, uh, this meeting was, was, uh, at the beginning, when we first beginning to gather together, fellows coming from all over the state. When, uh, and the leadership were, were having their little, their little private meeting, planning some, uh, some things. I was sitting in a, uh, a room, probably about half the size of this room, and there were a number of different tables, and of course they had donuts and coffee. And, uh, and so I, and I didn't know any of these guys, so I sat down at a table with a, with a young fella who was maybe 30. And I said, uh, so, you know, I, I introduced myself and I said, so, so, where do you, where do you, where's your ministry and what do you do? He told me, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a church planter. Really? And I said, where are you? And he mentioned a, a decent sized city in the state of Michigan. Well, tell me about it. And he told me his history. The guy grew up in a church that some of you would know the name of. It's a church with a great history. It's a church that was had a profound and positive influence in the whole country, at least for a window of time. It was a big church, big church, probably running uh, six, seven, eight hundred at one point, maybe more than that. But over the years, it had dwindled. And this young man had grown up in that church when he was a boy. And when he graduated from college and was stepping out into his vocational ministry as a church planner, he went back to his hometown because the church that he had grown up in was ready to close its doors. Because the number of people was about as many people as we got here. And they had an auditorium bigger than the build, than the ground that this, this building covers. They had an auditorium that big with 20 people in it. And so this fellow started a new church, new name, took this group of people, used them as his core to start something anew, and he's got a great nest egg because they sold this huge building, and so they've got that money in the bank for the future. But that great big huge thing went away. Tragedy. Tragedy. And yet... The people that built that great, big, huge church two generations ago, three generations ago. Are they rewarded in heaven for what is there today or ten years ago? No. They are rewarded for what they did in their time. And the same thing is true with you and me. I am rewarded for what I did with the opportunities that God gave me. Nehemiah says, remember me for good. Nehemiah puts, I'm not going to go into all the details, but he deals with enforcement of the Sabbath laws. He goes through the various things. He fixes the broken things that had happened since he was there as much as he can. And he says, remember me for good. Verse 22, he says, remember me, O God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of thy mercy. He contends with the elders again. Because what had happened is the very thing that they had promised there in verses 1, 2, and 3, that we can't marry pagans. 
And this was a problem that went back to the book of Ezra as well. That's the huge theme in the book of Ezra. And it was talked about there in Leviticus chapter 21, verses 14 through 15, that this was forbidden. But the people had done it anyway. Ezra chapters 9 and 10, this is dealt with. And they had married pagans. Look at verse 23. In those days also I saw Jews that had married wives of Ashdod. Ashdod would be a Philistine city. And of Ammonites and of the Moabites. And their children. Now here's what you've got. You have to realize this. You can go into this, this act of disobedience with the best of motives. What about the children? What about the children that come from such things? It says, and their children spoke half in the language of Ashdod and could not speak the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. They, they, they followed the course of their, their mothers, which is usually how it works. And I contended with them and I cursed them. This doesn't mean he, he, he cussed them out. It means he's calling God's imprecations upon them. He's, may God deal with you. And he's, he plucked off their hair and made them swear by God, you will not do this. And then he goes to the Old Testament. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among all nations was there no king like him who was beloved of God, and God made him king over Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin. We went through the life of Solomon uh, on Sunday nights here a number of months ago. Here you have a guy who is the smartest guy since Adam. He knows the word. When he's a youth, it says he loved the Lord. And in his old age, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, a, a tragic thing that between the Exodus and Malachi, you have only really one little window of most of the reign of David and probably the first two-thirds, the three-quarters of the reign of Solomon where Israel was doing what they're supposed to be doing as far as their covenant responsibilities are concerned. And as a representative to the world of the God of Israel. Because people came to Israel. And David had Philistines come and become part of his administration and turn away from their paganism and embrace the God of Israel. And people came from all over the world to hear the wisdom of Solomon, which wasn't just that water is made of two, uh, of three atoms. It's this, this. It was to hear about God. And there was a window of time when Israel was fulfilling that responsibility. And the smartest guy since the fall failed to fulfill his responsibility. Why? Why did, because he was doing the same thing that Eliashib did. Yes, I, I want to honor God, but I also want prestige. I want luxury. I want acceptance. And so I'm going to have a harem. And I'm going to build chariot cities and have a giant, giant, uh, uh, barns of, of, of horses and so on, which were prohibited in the Old Testament. The harem was prohibited in the Old Testament, the gathering of horses, and then wealth. I want wealth. I want gold. I want gold. I want gold. And I told you when we were going through the life of Solomon that by today's standard, Solomon was a multi-trillionaire. You take all the billionaires that are in the world today, lump them together, and you had Solomon. As far as the amount of stuff he had. And yet, that was prohibited in the Old Testament too. He was not supposed to accumulate gold, wives, or horses. Why? Because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. Solomon knew the scripture. He knew what it said. Yeah, but don't go there. It is never right to do wrong. Period. I don't care who you are. And he did. And Nehemiah brings that up. I mean, even Solomon, even Solomon failed in this. 
Shall we then hearken unto you to do this great evil? Because that's what it is. To transgress against God in marrying foreign wives. Verse 29. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. And so Nehemiah, verse 30. Thus cleansed I them of all their, of all their, their, of all, all the strangers, all the foreigners, and appointed the wards of the priests and the Levites, everyone to his business. I put them back in place doing what they're supposed to be doing. And for the wood offering at times appointed and for the first fruits. And then he concludes with this. Remember me, oh my God, for good. We need to make up our minds. It's good to do it corporately. Israel did. They failed. But we need to make up our minds individually. And we talked about this a number of months ago. I need to make up my mind that I am going to serve God, that I am going to be faithful to His Word, that there will be fidelity to God's Word. I am not going to try to justify my wrongdoing. I'm not going to compromise. I'm not going to give excuses. There's going to be no yabats. I'm going to make up my mind that I'm going to do the right thing regardless of the cost. Regardless of the outcome, I will do what's right. I will teach others to do the same. And some great things may be accomplished and ought to be. And I will seek to honor God by obeying God. But recognize the fact that there are a whole lineup of other people and there's a devil that's there who is going to do everything they can do and he can do to undermine what what you're trying to do. And sometimes they'll succeed. But I need to be faithful to the appointed task in my time and in my place. You and I need to make up our minds. I am going to do what's right because it's right and it's what God wants. And that's the only justification I need for it. Heavenly Father, thank you for the testimony of a man who is determined to serve you regardless of of what others may say or do. And Father, may that be us. May we, may each person in this room make up their minds that they are going to do the right thing regardless of the cost. That they will be obedient to the scripture. And they're not going to necessarily do what is popular or what they feel like doing. But they're going to do what your word says. Father, may we be faithful to you. May we strive to honor you. And Father, may we do so whether anybody else does or not. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Baptist Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to know more about faith in Jesus Christ or more about our ministry, please visit www.gracebaptistpuyallup.org. Until next time, may you walk worthy of the Lord.